Well, hello. Are you up for a movie? Should we have a morning off? Let's watch a film. I'd like to answer the question, Judge. Corporal, we're for You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. You can't handle the truth. Anyone seen that movie? Yeah. Anyone know that movie? A few good men. That's right. Tom Cruise is seeking the truth about what happened at Guantanamo Bay. Very, very dramatic indeed. Um, if you haven't seen that one, seen that particular film, maybe you'll recognise this show. Anyone recognise that show? The X-Files? Some of you? A few of you? The truth is out there. That's what the, uh, the tagline was for the TV show. Um, I wasn't allowed to watch The X-Files because I was too young and um, my parents deemed it far too scary uh, for me. So what I would do is I would wait until they'd gone to bed or I'd gone to bed and I'd get my little 14-inch TV and put it really close and then turn the volume right down and just keep my finger over the power button in case they, they walked in so I could watch it. Which was a really good plan until I saw a particularly terrifying episode um, and then couldn't sleep for a week. Um, yeah, serves me right, exactly. So maybe they were right. Um, but this morning we're not going to talk about A Few Good Men or The X-Files or even really... Um, my traumatic childhood, um, but we are going to talk about truth, truth. Last week, Jesus told his followers, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And he told them that to encourage them because of the hard times they were about to, to face. We have, for the past, past few weeks, been looking at this, this meal that Jesus is having with his disciples, this intimate meal. It wasn't your, your typical luncheon. Jesus had started by washing their feet which was a bit uncomfortable. Um, and then he'd said, one of you is going to betray me, at which point <laughs> Judas had left, and so everyone was a bit tense. And then he'd told Peter, one of his closest followers, that he would deny even knowing him. And so the disciples, they obviously had some, some questions. They had some concerns, and we, we looked at those last week. But now the meal was over, and they headed out into the Garden of Gethsemane, which was a place that, that Jesus often um, went with his followers to pray. And while they were there, Judas returned, but this time he came with a whole host of men with swords and clubs. And Peter, still with the words ringing in his ear that Jesus had said to him, attacked one of them, but Jesus said, no, put it away, Peter. And he went with them willingly, and he was taken to the home of the high priest Caiaphas. And it was there that he was put on trial, not a, a legal trial because they could only happen during the hours of daylight, but a trial nonetheless. And a trial that I think really was all about truth. Now the encounter that I want to explore with you this morning is found in all four Gospels. It's found in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John in the New Testament. And there's an incredible um, amount of detail that's given to us about this particular encounter. Arguably Luke and John have the most, but, but both Matthew and Mark have their own unique perspectives as well. And it's one of the things that I really love about the Bible, that we have um, these varied accounts that each author wants to uh, tell us what happened in their own voice. They have a slightly different take on how things unfolded. As I mentioned last week, um, John 
the disciple whom Jesus loved, he, he writes at the end of his gospel that he records the things he does because he wants us to know that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that we might believe in, in him. Luke, on the other hand, he writes at the start of his gospel, I've, I've taken it on myself to write an orderly account. He says, I've, I've spoken to the eyewitnesses, I've got all the details for you, and I've, I've laid it all out. And Luke was very details-oriented guy. He was a doctor, a, an apostle of Paul, and between Luke and Acts, he writes over a quarter of the New Testament, so he shoves in as much as he can. Whereas Mark, on the other hand, he hardly uses any detail at all. He just seems to rush through his gospel. But it was the earliest. Both Matthew and Luke borrow bits from Mark. So he's got that for him. And, and Matthew, again, is different because he writes to a Jewish audience primarily. And so he calls it um, the kingdom of heaven rather than the kingdom of God out of respect for the name of God and his audience. And he talks about um, the Old Testament a lot. He talks about how scripture was fulfilled and the things that Jesus said. Um, and so... What we've got is these, these kind of unique, very, very similar in many, many ways, but often with slightly um, different details or different focuses, these different accounts. And because today's encounter is such a key one, because it's such an important encounter, I really wanted us to have the, the most complete version that we possibly could for us to look at today. So, what I've done, I've printed them all out. I've got my scissors, I've got my sticky tape, uh, and I've mushed them together into one narrative for us to look at this morning. So this might be a little bit tricky for you to follow along with in your Bibles. If you want to give it a go, though, I have colour-coded it for you. Matthew 27 is in red, Mark 15 is in blue, Luke 23 is in green, and John 18 and 19 are going to be in purple. So if you want to sort of insert four fingers and flick back and forth, you can. Um, if you are online with your phones or tablets, I have put the full transcript on the website in the sermon section, and you can follow that way if you like. Um, but I will put all the words up on screen as well. Okie dokie. So how does this encounter begin? Well, we're going to begin in Luke, actually. And this is what it says. At daybreak, the council of the elders of the people, both the chief priests and the teachers of the law, met together, and Jesus was led before them. If you are the Messiah, they said, tell us. Jesus answered, if I tell you, you will not believe me. And if I asked you, you would not answer. But from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of mighty God. They all asked, are you the Son of God? He replied, you say that I am. And then they said, well, why do we need any more testimony? We've heard it from his own lips. We'll just pause there for a minute. As I mentioned earlier, Jesus was being put on trial. Um, and on the face of it, the chief priests and the, the teachers of the law, they seem to want to know the truth about Jesus. They say, you know, if you're the Messiah, then, then tell us. But Jesus responds almost with the same line from the clip earlier. You can't handle the truth. Or in other words, you don't really want to know the truth about me. And you see, the reason that they didn't want to know the truth was because their minds were already made up. Before they'd even examined the evidence, what they were really interested in here was character assassination. Jesus said, if I tell you, you won't believe me. And if I ask you what you think, you, you wouldn't answer. So why should I tell you? You know, the questions that we looked at last week that were 
put to Jesus by his followers were as searching as these ones in, in many ways. Lord, we don't know where you're going, so how can we know the way? Why don't you just show us God? Why don't you reveal yourself to the world? But the difference is that the questions that came from the disciples came from a place of genuine desire to know and understand Jesus more. Whereas these questions today, they come from a group of people who are looking for a reason to reject him. You see, I don't think it really would have mattered what Jesus said in this moment because their hearts were already closed to him. Or any possibility that he might be anything more than a troublemaker or a liar. At the start of John's Gospel, he says the true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognise him. And later on, Paul reflects on it this way. He writes in 2 Corinthians 4, The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so they cannot see the light of the gospel that displays the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. And I think the truth is that actually it's the case for many people today that they've already made up their minds about Jesus before they've had any real opportunity to meet him for themselves. Now the chief priests and the the teachers of the law, their minds were made up because they saw him as a threat to their particular way of life. They were comfortable with the life they created for themselves, with the, the respect they commanded from the people, with the status and wealth that came with the titles they carried. And they saw how Jesus challenged that. They saw how Jesus challenged them. And something must be done, is what they concluded. And I think it's the same for many people today. They don't want to know anything about Christianity because they fear it will call into question the life that they've created for themselves. They, they like things the way they are. But I guess the truth is that the things we have in this life, whether they're material or otherwise, they're only ever temporary. Here today and gone tomorrow, power and, and wealth and status, these things are an illusion. They're not something that we can rely upon, that we can put our faith in. Today, as has already been mentioned, is Palm Sunday. It's the day when we traditionally celebrate Jesus uh, arriving in Jerusalem to fanfare and branch waving. But if you read Luke's account, he tells us that as Jesus approaches the city, he weeps. He cries. And he says, if you, only you, Jerusalem, had known on this day what would bring you peace, but now it's hidden from you. Because Jesus knew what was coming. He knew in AD 70 that the temple would be destroyed, that thousands and thousands of Jewish people would be slaughtered or taken into slavery. He knew that the life that they thought was stable, thought was solid, was going to come tumbling down around them, both figuratively and literally. Because they built their lives upon a lie. And they weren't willing to see the truth. Earlier on, in the Gospel of John, Jesus says, that the devil is the father of lies. He says when he lies, he speaks his native language because he is a liar and the father of lies. And this is, I think, who Paul speaks about when he talks of the God of this age, the one who blinds the minds of unbelievers. And I think one of the greatest lies that he tells us, that he speaks into our lives, is that the things we have in this world are enough to satisfy us. They're enough to make us happy, to keep us safe, to give us what we need, but they're not because we weren't designed that way. 
We weren't designed for the material or the temporary. We were designed for the eternal, for God and for his glory. That's why Jesus says, from now on, the Son of Man will be seated at the right hand of the mighty God. I'm going to be with my Father. But the chief priests and the teachers of the law, they just wanted to cling on to, to hold on to this little life, this little world they created for themselves. And because of that, they sought to put an end to Jesus. Now, unfortunately for them, because they were under um, Roman rule, Roman governance, they needed permission from the governor to um, get rid of Jesus, to, to kill him. And they needed permission from a man called Pontius Pilate. Very early in the morning, the chief priests with the elders, the teachers of the law, and the whole Sanhedrin, the Sanhedrin was about was 71 people, so there's a big crowd of them, they made their plans. When the Jewish leaders took Jesus from Caiaphas to the place of the Roman governor, by now it was very early morning, and to avoid ceremonial uncleanliness, they did not enter the palace because they wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, what charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. And they began to accuse him, saying, we have found this man subverting our nation. He opposes payment of taxes to Caesar and claims to be Messiah, a king. So we can tell here that these people are not on the side of truth that they are speaking the language of lies because the accusations they make to Pilate are all false. They're not true at all. They accused him of subverting the nation, essentially being um, a dangerous revolutionary. But Jesus never incited his followers to violence. As he told Peter to put his sword away the previous night, he said, those who live by the sword die by the sword. He called his, his followers to pray for their enemies to love those that persecuted them, to turn the other cheek, hardly the words of a dangerous revolutionary. They accused him of opposing payment of taxes to Caesar, and yet earlier that same week they had asked him, should we pay taxes to Caesar? And he said, well, give to Caesar's what's Caesar's, and give to God what's God's. And they accused him of claiming to be a Messiah, a king, someone who was setting themselves up in opposition to Caesar, and while Jesus often spoke of the kingdom of God. It was others who gave him that title, king. The wise men at his birth, those who welcomed him into the city with palm branches, shouted, blessed is the king, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And so these things, they were all lies. They were designed to get Pilate on board with their way um, of thinking. They wanted him to be convinced that this man should die because... Um, the likelihood of Pilate doing them a favour was um, really not great. There was quite a lot of animosity there. In fact, if you uh, kind of look into some of the, what history records about Pilate, there are a number of um, very inflammatory incidents that took place. For example, on one occasion, um, he brought the army into the city bearing standards that were showing idolatrous images. And when the Jewish people complained and demanded that they be removed, he surrounded them with his guard and threatened to have them all killed. He only gave up because they agreed and said we would rather die than break our holy law. On another occasion, he took money from the temple to build an aqueduct. 
And this time he got ahead of the complainers. He had his guard dressed in plain clothes and hide among them. And when they came to complain, he gave an order and the soldiers attacked and killed those that were complaining. And so things were a little bit tense, to put it lightly. They needed to find something that would get Pilate round to their way of thinking, but Pilate has little tolerance for their games. He turns to them and he says this, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, they objected. This took place to fulfil what Jesus had said about the kind of death he was going to die. Then Pilate went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew? Pilate replied. Your own people and chief priests handed you over to me. What is it that you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jewish leaders. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. And Jesus answered, you have said so. In fact, the reason I was born and came into this world is to testify to truth. Everybody on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? retorted Pilate. What is truth? So Pilate is not willing to take the claims that the chief priests and teachers make about Jesus at face value. He has questions of his own. Are you a king? Are you leading these people? And again, Jesus questions his motivation for asking. He says, was that your idea? Is that a genuine question or is that just what you've heard from others? And we know that the disciples' hearts were open, the chief priests' hearts were closed. But what did Pilate want to know of Jesus and the truth that he was offering to him? Well, Jesus gives him something, doesn't he? He gives him a little a way of understanding. He explains that he, he is a king, but that his kingdom is not of this world. He's not like a king like Pilate would imagine a king to be, with armies to, to fight for him and overthrow the establishment. He's a king of a different sort, a king of a different nature. But what sort of a king was he? Pilate says, well, so you are. You are a king. And Jesus says, well, you've said so. That's what you're, you're calling me. But the reason I came into this world, the reason I came, is to testify to truth. And everybody on the side of truth listens to me. And I think this is key. I think this is Jesus' challenge to Pilate. I think this is where the tables are turned. Jesus is no longer on trial by Pilate, although he never really was because he put himself there and could have removed himself whenever he wished. But I think in this moment, Pilate is put on trial by Jesus. Jesus isn't saying you, can, you can't handle the truth like he was to the Jewish leaders. Now he's asking Pilate, do you want the truth? The truth is, out there, if you're prepared to listen to me, I can show you. And Pilate's response, you know, considering it was given a couple of thousand years ago, is remarkably postmodern, don't you think? Rather than being open to the idea of exploring the truth Jesus wants to bring into his life, he calls into question the very existence of truth itself. What is truth? He retorts. He sidesteps instead of Going deeper, he pushes away the idea that there might be something more to discover here. 
And it's very much, I think, where we are today. If you, if you buy um, any kind of modern dictionary, you'll find the word post-truth. Have you come across that word? Post-truth. It relates to circumstances where objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion than appeals to emotion and personal belief. If you look at our, our country right now, if you spend any time watching the news, you'll quickly see how uh, politics and politicians embrace the idea of post-truth. Remember the good old days. And fake news comes out of this idea as well, you know, that if enough doubt is sown by those in power, we become convinced that the things that we see and hear cannot be trusted. And so truth becomes subjective and emotional rather than factual. It's not... Um, it's not a new idea. It's just that with the rise of social media and global communication, you know, we've become increasingly able to recognise that we have a language in common, and that language is the language of lies. <laughs> the devil's language. And so we gave it a clever name, post-truth. But it's not really truth. Christian author and thinker Dallas Willard says this, he says, the bitterness of truth is its total indifference to human desire and will, together with the fact that human desire and will is set upon reshaping reality and therefore truth to suit itself. In other words, truth can't be changed by human will and desire. Something is either true or it isn't. You know, if you read through um, the Gospels, what you quickly find is that one of Jesus' favourite sayings, one of his catchphrases, is the, is the words, I tell you the truth. I tell you the truth. I think the NIV says, um, very truly, I tell you. He says that nearly 70 times through the Gospels because he knows that we live in a world that is full of and shaped by lies. The God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Lies about ourselves. You are worthless, hopeless useless, without value. You mean nothing to anyone. You are unloved and unlovable. Lies about our world. You need to hurt people to get ahead, stand on your own rights. You need to be wealthy to be happy. Greed is a, is a good thing. You need to protect what you have at, at all costs. Don't worry about anybody else. Lies about each other. Stay away from them. Stick with your own kind, close the borders, kick them out. Don't trust anyone, only love people who love you back. And of course, I think the biggest lie that the world has accepted today is that there is no God. Jesus was just some man. Forget about it. But Jesus said, I tell you the truth. More than that, he said, I am the truth. And what we need to decide for ourselves this morning is whether or not we believe Jesus when he says that. Christian author and thinker C.S. Lewis says this, Christianity, if false, is of no importance. You may as well stop coming to church. And if true, of infinite importance, it has the potential to change everything. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. Are you open to the truth of Jesus in your life this morning? Or are you comfortable with the lies that the world has told you? I think Pilate was comfortable with the life that he had. And so he pushes Jesus away. 
goes on, the chief priests accused him of many things. And so again, Pilate asked him, aren't you going to answer? See how many things they're accusing you of. But Jesus made no reply, not even to a single charge, to the great amazement of the governor. With this, he went out again to the Jews gathered there and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But they insisted. He stirs up people all over Judea by his teaching. He started in Galilee and he's come all the way here. On hearing this, Pilate asked if he was a Galilean. When he learned that Jesus was under Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Off you go. When Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see him. For he'd heard about him, he hoped he would perform a sign of some sort. He piled in with many questions, but Jesus gave him no answer. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were standing there, vehemently accusing him. Then Herod and his soldiers ridiculed and mocked him. Dressing him in an elegant robe, they sent him back to Pilate. That day, Herod and Pilate became friends. Before this, they had been enemies. You see, unlike the chief priests and the elders who'd made up their minds before meeting Jesus, Pilate simply didn't want to know. He handed him over the first opportunity he got to Herod. And, and Herod was a little bit different from the other two in that he at least wanted to meet Jesus. He was greatly pleased, it says, that he turned up in the courts. But unfortunately, he too had no interest in the truth. He was far more interested in being entertained. He wanted Jesus to perform for him, to do one of his party tricks, turn some water into wine or miraculously multiply his lunch. Herod is mentioned earlier in the, in the Gospels as the one who beheaded John the Baptist at the request of his wife's daughter because she did a dance for him and he liked it. This was a man who lived for pleasure and nothing else. He just wanted to be thrilled, to feel good, but never discover anything deeper in life. Never to open himself up to the possibility that there might be something more. He was shallow. And so when Jesus refused to dance for him, he made his own entertainment. He dressed him in a robe and he, he made fun of him. But like all people that live for pleasure, he quickly became bored and sent him back to Pilate. And so I think what we see in this narrative is that there are three different rejections of Jesus. The chief priests and the, the teachers of the law rejected him because they, they saw him as a threat to their way of life. Their hearts were hard. They wanted nothing to do with him. Pilate knew something of Jesus. He recognised him as a king at least, but was unwilling to take the time to get to know him, convinced of his own intellectual superiority. Herod wanted to meet him, but only so he could be entertained, so he could have his desires fulfilled. And Jesus didn't meet his expectations, so he did away with him. And it sort of reminds me a little bit of a story that Jesus told, a parable that Jesus told about how the truths that he wanted to bring into the world would be received. He said it was like a farmer growing a seed. You might remember this one. He said, some seed will fall on the path and birds will eat it up. It will never go into the ground like the chief priests who'd already made their mind up. He said, some will fall on rocky places where there's not much soil, there's, there's no depth, it's shallow like Herod and so the message is unable to take root and he said some will fall among thorns which will grow up alongside and choke the plant Pilate didn't even recognize the truth in front of him because of the weeds in his life all of the conflicting philosophies and worldviews that he had to contend with on a day-to-day -day basis and so what happened well the story concludes this way so as Pilate called together the chief priests, the rulers and the people and said to them, you brought me this man who is one who is inciting the people to rebellion. 
I've examined him in your presence and found no basis for your charges against him. Neither has Herod. For he sent him back to us, and as you can see, he's done nothing to deserve death. Therefore, I will punish him and release him. And then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again, saying, Hail the King of the Jews, and they slapped him in the face. Once more, Pilate came out and said to the Jews gathered there, Look, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and the officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jewish leaders insisted, We have a law, and according to that law, he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. It says, When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid. He went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? He asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me? Pilate said. Don't you realize I have power to either free you or crucify you? Jesus answered, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed you over to me is guilty of the greatest sin. And it says, from then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jewish leaders kept on shouting, if you let this man go, you're no friend of Caesar's. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. And Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at the place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of the Passover and it was about noon. Remember, this started very early in the morning and now it's noon. While Pilate was sitting on the judge's seat, His wife sent him this message, Don't have anything to do with that innocent man, for I've suffered a great deal today in a dream because of him. Now it was the custom at the festival to release a prisoner whom the people requested. A man called Barabbas was in prison with the insurrectionists who had committed murder in the uprising. The crowd came up and asked Pilate to do for them what he usually did. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? asked Pilate knowing it was out of self-interest that the chief priest handed Jesus over to him, but the chief priest stirred up the crowd to have Pilate release Barabbas instead. They shouted back, No, not him, give us Barabbas. What shall I do then with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? Pilate asked. They all answered, Crucify him. Wanting to release Jesus, Pilate appealed to them again, but they kept shouting, Crucify him, crucify him. Why, what crime has he committed? asked Pilate. But they all shouted louder, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king? Pilate asked. We have no king but Caesar, the chief priest answered. When Pilate saw he was getting nowhere, but instead an uproar was starting, he took water and washed his hands in front of the crowd. I am innocent of this man's blood, he said. It is your responsibility. The people answered, his blood is on us and our children. And so Pilate decided to grant their demand. He released the man who'd been thrown into prison for insurrection and murder, the one they'd asked for, and surrendered Jesus to their will. Pilate's conflict, I guess, continues. First he has Jesus flogged, viciously whipped his flesh torn, and forces a mocking crown upon his head. And then he hears that he might be the son of God, and so he he questions him again, telling him that he has the power to save him. But Jesus reminds him that he's not the one in control. You would have no power, he says, if it were not given to you from above. 
And ultimately, and I think most significantly in this encounter, Pilate decides to wash his hands of Jesus. He stood before the Son of God from early morning until noon. And in the end, he rejects him. And then Jesus went to the cross. He went to the cross to die for him. He went to the cross to die for Herod, to die for the chief priests and the teachers of the law. He went to the cross to die for all of humanity. He laid down his life for a world that had rejected him, that had spat upon him, that had cursed him, that had beaten him, that had had him flogged, that had dressed him in robes, that had mocked him, that had allowed him to die nailed to a piece of wood. He went to the cross for a world that had turned their faces away. He died for them all because he loved them. Because he loved them. Because he loved them. And that's the truth. And you know what? He loves you too. In spite of what you might have said or or thought about in, in the past, whether you've rejected him and, and sort of pushed him away like Pilate or, or hardened your heart towards him like the Jewish leaders or just gotten bored of him like Herod, he still loves you. He still wants you to know him. He still wants for his truth to land with you. There's a final type of soil that Jesus mentions in his parable. It's the type of soil where his truth could take root and produce life. Free from the the weeds and the the rock and the hard ground. Good soil. I guess this morning we have the same choice as Pilate, don't we? We can leave this morning having heard about Jesus, having sung about his goodness and his faithfulness to us and his majesty and his glory and reflected on all the truths that we have in communion that Jesus died for us, and if we want, we can just wash our hands and say, ah, it's not for me. Or we can say, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know your truth in my life. I'm tired of the lies of this world, and I think that you might be worth pursuing. I think you might be worth pursuing. Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, you really are my disciples, and then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free free from the lies of this world, free to know that you are loved, that you are valued, that you are special, that you have a hope, that you are a created being, that you are free to love others, to make this world a better place, to stand against the lies that we hear day in, day out. You are free when you know the truth. I wonder if the band will come and join us. I know it's been a bit heavy this morning. Sorry. (laughs) Not enough jokes. But it's important, isn't it, I think, sometimes just to stop and reflect. Reflect on how we are viewing Jesus in our lives right now. Because whether we know him or, or haven't known him, we can all come to that place, whether consciously or subconsciously, we just decide to, to push him away. to get distracted, to focus on other things in our life. And it's good sometimes just to stop and be reminded 
that he is the way, the truth, and the life. That it's in him that we find all that we need. I wonder if you'd stand with me. Let's just... um, We're going to bring this to close in the time of prayer. I'm going to pray now, and and you can pray in your own hearts. Um, But then we're going to go out on a high because we know the truth. Okay? We're going to sing a good song. Let's pray.